Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone, welcome to Battle Walks. My name is Peter Smith and today I'm recording the second episode of uh, one of my out and about podcasts. Uh, We use the title Satnav Diversions, which I think explains uh, a little on what we're doing. Um, If you remember, for those that uh, have listened to it, we we recorded the first uh, in a bar in Cherbourg uh, with my good friend and V1 enthusiast Andrew Bellamy. Uh, who kept on bringing me cold beers. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? Well, I have to say, by the end of the night, it ended up with me eating a kebab in bed in my hotel room. Uh, I feel uh, uh, no further comment is necessary, but uh, we had a good evening. So again, no Matt McLaughlin, uh, my normal co-host. Uh, this is just uh, uh, myself. So where are we actually recording today? Well, I'm actually back at home. I'm in my study in Flares uh, on the Somme. So, where had we been? Well, it's day three that we're going to be looking at uh, of uh, a tour looking at V1 sites, but this is mainly going to be about all of those those things that we find on uh, on the routes, just casually while we're travelling around uh, using the sat-nav mainly, so hence the title, sat-nav diversions. So the first hour on schedule stops uh, was for a coffee. Um, we had uh, visited, I don't know, a good half a dozen V1 sites by then, um, been in and out of the car multiple times, um, and so a coffee in one of the local bars, uh, and I highly recommend if you are travelling in rural France and you're just exploring, make sure you use the the local bars. Bars, a, I feel like putting a bit of money into the local economy, but b, that's where you get the information from, and you really feel a kind of 
it's not tourist uh, tourist France, I suppose. It, it's proper rural France, so I enjoy the bars. And in this case, um, we met a, a young couple who came across to have a chat with us uh, and pointed us in a, in a couple of directions. But the reason for stopping was, A, there was a bar in the town, which are getting harder to find, but B, there was an enormous uh, chateau. Um, so where are we? Well, the town is called Bricquebec. Um, the full title, Bricquebec and Cotentin, uh, and that's uh, we're on the Cotentin Peninsula, which is um, uh, very close to the, uh, the the landing beaches for D-Day, um, and we're actually making our way behind the landing beaches and uh, heading back towards Paris slowly. That's the the route that we're going to, uh, the, the direction we're going to be heading in. So why stop here? Uh, well, as I said, coffee, but also there was a very obvious chateau. So the the Chateau de Bricquebec, uh, which is what we wanted to go and have a look at. It's a medieval fortress. Um, and uh, the the man that actually that we're interested in, the Chevalier of Lyon, so uh, the Green Lion Knight, doesn't sound quite as good when you say it in English, Chevalier of Lyon, the Green Lion Knight. Um, that's the guy that we're going to uh, be chatting about, uh, Robert VIII Bertrand de Bricquebec, um, he uh, was uh, living from 1273 to 1348, so I'm well out of my comfort zone here. But it's uh, it's just interesting, as you'll see as we uh, as I uh, again what we do is we read the panels, go and have a look at uh, what we can see. So a lovely uh, fortress, you can imagine the type of uh, medieval Norman castle that we're looking at. Um, so a little bit about uh, about this guy. So during 1322, Robert accompanied his father-in-law. Um, uh, with other French knights into the service of King Edward II of England. And this is where I thought it was interesting. They fought for England against the uh, King Robert I of Scotland. And during a decisive meeting at the Battle of the Old Byland on the 14th of October 1322 in Yorkshire, uh, they actually lost and the, the French knights remained on the battlefield uh, after the English were defeated and they were made uh, prisoner. So uh, not a particularly good uh, first uh, sully to uh, to England, but I just found it interesting that connection with England. Here we are in in rural uh, France. Uh, to give you an idea of the level that this guy was at in 1325, he was appointed marshal uh, of France uh, by King Charles the um, the Fourth of France. Um, and again, another connection to one of our previous podcasts, the Battle of. Uh, 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 castle. So in 1328, the, the Marshal returned to Flanders following a new revolt of the Flemish, uh, this time accompanied by the new King Philip uh, V of France. Um, and the, the Flemish rebels, commanded by Nicholas Zanakin, were annihilated by the French Royal Army at the Battle of Castle. Uh, so a connection to a previous podcast for those that have listened to it about Castle. Uh, um, moving on. Uh, the Hundred Years' War between France and England, and Bertrand was ordered to occupy the island of Guernsey for the English, uh, 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 to keep it from the English, should I say, and he was appointed Lord of Guernsey, and a position he held until Guernsey was uh, recaptured by the English in July 1345. Uh, resigned as Marshal of France in 1344, so the year before, um, and he was a- aged 71 uh, at that uh, at that time. So uh, long-lived, I suppose, for that period. Um, his uh, final uh, 
battle was an attempt to stop the uh, the English uh, landing when uh, King Edward III uh, landed in Normandy on the 12th of July in 1346 and uh, him and uh, his son uh, had to retire only 30 survivors of, of his troop uh, in trying to stop the English landing uh, and he, he then uh, sought refuge at Cannes which was laid uh, in, uh, under siege the chateau at Cannes was sieged and um, uh, eventually uh, the siege was lifted. Um, and he died uh, in 1348. So quite a, a long-lived uh, guy for that period. So we had a wander around the uh, the castle and the keep um, and, uh, uh, and, and into the, the parkland around it. It's all very uh, attractive, I have to say. And we found a, a rather odd thing. We found a pyramid in one of the gardens it's called the memory, uh, the memory pyramid. It's about the size of a domestic car, um, and it's uh, in concrete. But within the concrete, and this is what caught our eye immediately, there are basically guns and helmets just sticking out of the helmet, uh, out of the pyramid, and shell cases and all sorts of bits and bobs uh, sticking out of it. It's a bit like uh, excavating dinosaur bones, and it was created in two thousand to mark the passing of the previous uh, century. And we noted on the panel that it actually was uh, uh, commemorating conflict and, and the passing of time in the area. And the actual concrete was made uh, with sand from uh, Utah Beach, which I, I thought was quite moving. So interesting modern piece of architecture, but well worth going to uh, to have a look at. Walking through one of the entrance gates, uh, the keeps into the uh, into the town. Uh, we're actually leaving the town, walking beyond the fortifications. We came across a, a bronze uh, memorial to General Le uh, Morois. Um, I think that's how he pronounced his name. It looks like that's anyway. You know my, for those who've listened to me before, will know my French pronunciations are appalling. Uh, this is a bronze uh, statue. Uh, to um, uh, this general who was actually born in Bricky-Beck, uh and he's uh, what he became Napoleon's uh, aide de camp um, during uh, uh, his campaigns, uh, and his uh, period was seventeen seventy six to eighteen thirty six. I'm not going to go into the whole of his history. There's an awful lot about him, but uh, interesting guy. Um, again, uh, we'll be doing a Facebook page to go with the podcast, and I'll be putting up photographs of all of these things that we're visiting, and there's uh, going to be a picture of uh, this uh, this general. So after we've had this, uh, the good walk around uh, the town and several uh, coffees and the chat with the, the young couple, um, we were off again uh, in, uh, in the car. Um, I often uh, wonder how many times we get in and out of the car on one of these uh, one of these days. It's uh, uh, quite quite a lot of time, a lot of uh, in and outs and driving and using the sat nav, and it can be fairly tiring by the end of the day. But anyway, fairly fresh at this point. And uh, the first thing we came across, literally a couple of kilometres outside the town, was a memorial to um, a B twenty six Marauder from the three hundred twenty second Bomber Group. 9th uh, United States Army Air Force, so uh, Second World War uh, Marauder Bomber that had, uh, had crashed here. I'm just flicking through my pictures now so I can uh, look at it, each picture. I've got them on my iPad beside me so I know what I'm talking about. Um, so the memorial was uh, a flagpole, stone-built uh, a small wall with a, a black um, marble uh, tablet in the middle. And what we just found just uh, comical, and in this case, it, it, it can be uh, comical because the name of the plane was Hess for Six. 
Uh, I thought, well, a fantastic name. And in this case, it's not prof- uh, prophetic, um, as uh, all of them survived the uh, the crash. And it crashed at this location on the 13th of April 1944, so all six crewmen surviving. Uh, five were taken prisoner, and uh, one uh, managed to evade. And um, he was uh, Sergeant Waldo W. Shows. And I'm now going to pick up a, a piece of paper because, again, this is the great joy of of uh, going on one of these uh, these sat nav diversions and stopping to read these things. Um, thankfully, nowadays with the internet and uh, and everything else that you can uh, uh, access, we're quite uh, uh, quickly able to find out the basic information about the plane. But when I uh, got back home here in my study, I was able to uh, to download his escape and uh, evasion. Uh, report, uh, which uh, is just absolutely fascinating. There's pages of it about how he managed to escape. So I'm just going to read a, just a few uh, little bits from uh, from his report because it's just so interesting. So um, this is uh, um, uh, Sergeant Waldo uh, shows. Um, so uh, I was engineer in a B-26 on a mission to bomb some gun emplacements near Le Havre on April the 13th. Although the weather was poor, we dropped our bombs as scheduled and started for home. Passing through some cl- thick clouds over the channel, we lost the rest of our flight. After a while, we saw a coastline, which we supposed was England, but I could not hear our home beacon and the radio compass reckoning was all wrong. I told the co-pilot... Uh, who fired a very cartridge, hoping to get some ground signals in return. Instead, quite a lot of flak came up, so we knew we were still over France. I went back to try to get another bearing. The bell rang uh, uh, just after this, uh, and the pilot told us to jump, and we all went out the Bombay doors, except the pilot who was still in the ship when I left. I fell about a thousand feet before opening my chute, but came down easily and was first man to touch the ground. I saw four other chutes coming down some distance away, but never made contact with the rest of the crew, and I was later told that they'd all been captured by the Germans. I narrowly missed a telephone wire and was fired at by some Germans as I landed. I ran about 200 yards into some woods, threw my chute and mere west in a pool of water, and hid there for about an hour. At the edge of the woods, an old lady uh, walked past. She smiled and pointed back down the road. Soon, soon, two young Frenchmen came running, calling Bosch and motioning me to hide. Some Germans on motorcycles followed. Just turning the page. We pulled some leaves over, uh, I pulled some leaves over myself and the Germans combed the woods and questioned the French people uh, who came down the road. But they, uh, but they did not find me. I stayed there in the rain for three hours until everybody had gone away. Then I came out and walked about a quarter of a mile uh, and hid in the hedge when another German uh, passed. Finally, I went to another half mile and hid in a field until nightfall. I'm not going to read all of it. It goes uh, uh, on and on and on. But effectively, he's looked after by the the French. He's moved several locations um, and hidden in in barns, in buildings. And then when the landings take place, 
uh, he's uh, he has a decision to make to continue and hide with the French who actually start heading south away from the landing or to wait until the Americans uh, uh, arrive um, and hopefully evade the Germans and, and eventually give himself up. And that's exactly what he does. So I'll just read this little account. We walked north along the coast using a map drawn by a man who said he'd been a captain in the British Army in the last war. I found that fascinating. Who on earth was that? Um, we went through uh, one town where the Germans had moved out, but the Americans had not yet arrived. There was little artillery fire in the distance at times, and we saw a few observation planes. Um, eventually gets to uh, Barnville, uh, and three other Frenchmen joined him, uh, who were also hoping to get through the lines and to the American commander. They had uh, information to pass. They were resistance fighters. And eventually ran into an American uh, military policeman who uh, looks at his dog tags. He's in civilian clothes, so he was worried about a bit of the fact he was in civilian clothes. Um, and uh, we waved him through and took a, took him uh, to where he wanted to go. So I, I won't read any more. But it, it, absolutely fascinating uh, account for those that want to uh, track it down. Then uh, you can from his name, and I'll uh, I'll put a link uh, to it on the on the website as well. So having uh, had a look at this memorial, we then uh, lit back in the car again, and no exaggeration, about another couple of kilometres down the road, and we spotted another memorial, and this one uh, was in fact uh, to a Wellington, a little uh, difficult uh, to read, but it's a Wellington uh, Mark uh, four um, from 458 Squadron RAF and it crashed here on Friday the 9th of January 1942 uh, and this memorial has been put up by the uh, the local commune of uh, uh, Goldville um, and it was erected in 2008 uh, it's a lovely m- memorial uh, it's just just slightly difficult to read you have to get out very close to it um, so again uh, we were able to uh, to get some information and they were attacking targets in uh, Cherbourg um, and their base had been uh, home on Spalding Moor, which is in Lincolnshire, I think. Uh, six-man crew, three Australians, uh, two British and one New Zealander. Um, sadly, they uh, they all uh, lost their lives in the uh, in the crash. And so, again, we were able to track down a little bit of, of information about them. Um, uh, 31 aircraft taking uh, part in this raid and of those 31, four were uh, uh, lost and it is thought that Wellington R1785 which is the, its registration number was hit by flak and crashed at 7.23 uh, uh, hours in the morning uh, killing all the crew um, and it wasn't until March 1946 uh, that uh, their bodies were actually uh, recovered and interestingly, we've already we've already visited their graves because on the previous podcast, one of the last things we did was visit the CWGC Commonwealth War Graves plotting Sherberg uh, Old Communal Cemetery, and uh, they're they're all buried in in there together. So again, I've photographed uh, most of them, and so I'll be putting up uh, those photographs um, uh, on the uh, Facebook page as well. Um. So I'd actually written down uh, who the guys were. Shall I go through everybody? I don't think we will. I don't think we'll go through everybody. I'll, again, I'll, uh, I'll add that information. You'll see it on the uh, on the Facebook uh, page. Um, I just found it very moving. I was reading their epitaphs on some of their their graves, and uh, uh, very very moving. So 
Again, having paid our respects, we always uh, carry, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, we always carry a few poppy wreaths, uh, poppy wreaths about, or poppy crosses, or, or even just the individual poppies. We always leave something on on each one, uh, each memorial that we come across, just to say we've been. Uh, and off we went again, and again, probably about twenty minutes, fifteen, twenty minutes further down the road. This one was really extraordinary, round the corner. Um, I have no idea how we say this. The commune of Nehu. Um, that's what it looks like. No doubt you do not pronounce it like that. And it's General George S. Patton's command post uh, was based here from the 6th of July to the 2nd of August in 1944. Well, how do we know that? Well, because there was a Sherman tank at the side of the road. Uh, uh, Lucky Forward, the name emblazoned on the side of it uh, with the insignia of the American Third Army. Um, so that was uh, extraordinary to just go around a little tiny rural road and there's a Sherman tank at the, uh, the side of the road. And beside it was one of the famous Liberty Road markers, um, that flaming torch of liberty, which uh, is supposed to be emerging from the sea and being carried eastward um, uh, uh, along along the, the roads, that are the Liberty Road that will uh, take us eventually uh, all the way um, uh, from Normandy, from Utah Beach to Bastogne. That's the, the, the route that it takes. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, so great to see one of these. I've come across them. I, I, I guide up around Bastogne. So it was, uh, nice to, uh, to, to see one of the uh, Liberty Road markers. Um, the dome, uh, the dome top has the 48 stars representing the, um, the states. Um, uh, then at that uh, at that time uh, during the, the liberation of France, um, in fact, the, the whole thing was actually a French idea. Uh, it was uh, a guy called, uh, in fact, Guy Guy de la uh, Vassalier, um, and uh, he uh, uh, had been the liaison officer to Patton, and he suggested the idea of erecting a monument to commemorate the liberation of France by the American armies. And, and so there's one uh, every kilometre all the way from, as I say, from uh, Utah Beach uh, going all the way to uh, to Bastogne. So nice to have uh, to have a, a, a look at that. Um, a lot of panels explaining about what had uh, had, had gone on here um, and that it was uh, Patton's uh, headquarters and... Uh, um, so interesting, well worth uh, having a, a, a look at those. So again, off we go, uh, off we went again, and we're heading this, uh, this time. Um, we're actually heading towards uh, Bayo, uh, uh, the, and the, uh, the town of Bayo, which is where we're going to stay for the, uh, for the first uh, night. Um, so I'm just quickly looking at my photographs to make sure I'm, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not missing anything. Okay. Oh, just just back to just before we leave here, just a little bit more about the uh, about the fact that this was uh, Patton's uh, headquarters. Because I did wonder when I I read it, I thought, well, uh, if it's his command post, I wonder what you know what he was where he was sleeping. Was it in one of the buildings in the area and in the village itself? And it it wasn't. He had his uh, trailer caravan uh, here uh, along with uh, his his uh, general staff. 
uh, General uh, Gaffey and General Gay. They were both uh, both with him, both with their own uh, trail caravans as well. And so the command post was actually a tent in a, in amongst them. Uh, and it does point out that there was an orchard uh, just beside where this memorial site is, and uh, it's within that orchard, within that orchard that they were they had set up their command post. And in fact, there's only one tree left. It points out that there's just one tree left from the original orchard. Um, so anyway, so interesting. So off we go again, and we're heading to uh, to Bayer, uh, famous for its tapestry, um, and we're going to uh, check into our hotel, which we're, we're staying at this time. The Churchill, other hotels are available, but the Churchill Hotel, wonderfully named and very relevant to where we are. Um, and what I wanted to do was, once we checked in, was to actually go across and have a look at uh, the cathedral. Uh, the cathedral is, is fantastic, managed to survive the uh, the war without being uh, overly uh, damaged. And why I, I wanted to go uh, inside it was to have a look at the memorial tablet. So what memorial tablet are we talking about? Well, between 1923 and 1936, the Imperial War Graves C- uh, Commission um, erected a series of tablets in um, all of the cathedrals in France that had a connection to uh, to the war, to the uh, to the uh, the war, either troops were based nearby or uh, uh, wounded or casualty evacuations, um, and they decided to put uh, a commemorative plaque up uh, commemorating uh, the empire's dead of the First World War. So it's an empire memorial, which is uh, which is uh, very moving, um, so uh, very colourful. And the prototype, which I know very well, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go and have a look at this memorial tablet in the cathedral, is because the prototype, which is slightly different, is in Amiens Cathedral, very close to where I am at the moment in, in Flair. It's only half an hour away. So I've, I go to that fairly regularly uh, when I'm touring and take clients to go and look at the uh, the commission's tablet there. Um so yeah, nice to go and uh, have a have a look at that. I took some photographs of that, which I'll be uh, posting as well. Um, it's actually got the uh, the royal coat of arms and those of India and the imperial imperial uh, dominions, so South Africa, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and Newfoundland. They're all on there. So it's uh, it's a great memorial uh, to the empire, uh, and and uh, and it commemorates the six hundred thousand uh, dead, and so it's uh, of, of Britain and Ireland. When I read that, and I, I don't, I'm sure somebody's going to correct me on this, but but that's not the total dead. So 600,000 dead of Britain and Ireland. If this is an empire memorial, does that mean that the empire dead is, is commemorated uh, in that number when I read that number? Uh, don't know. Doesn't uh, Big numbers never kind of work, work uh, well for me, so I, I'm not sure. But that's uh, dedicated to the 600,000 dead of Britain and Ireland. Um so the inscription on the tablet was written by uh, uh, Rudyard Kipling, and that refers to the million dead of the empire. So that's that's kind of more relevant, I think, um, because that's the figure that I normally say, a million dead for the empire, very broad brush, but it kind of uh, gives you a, a feeling uh, of it. So how many of these are there? Well, there are 28 cathedrals uh, and churches within France that carry these uh, these. Uh, um, uh, plaques uh, 23 in France uh, there are also five in Belgium as well uh, and they're bilingual so their in, uh, their inscription is uh, either in English uh, uh, it's is it English uh, French or Latin respectively interesting that it's not in Flemish but anyway or maybe it is 
Um, Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's also one that was uh, unveiled in Westminster Abbey. Uh, so there's one in Westminster Abbey as well, and that one was uh, uh, unveiled in 1926 uh, in St. George's uh, Chapel. Um, there are also others, uh, replicas or copies, one in Hamilton uh, and Vancouver in Canada. There's one in Baghdad in, uh, in Iraq. Uh, also, uh, one in Delville Wood, literally can see Delville Wood from the window here. Um, that's, so that's South African. Uh, one in uh, Fremantle, Australia and, uh, in Liverpool. Um, so, so there's quite a few to go and have a look at, track them down, go and have a look at them. They're, uh, they're, they're very colourful and, uh, and, and moving. Now, the other reason that uh, I wanted to go and have a look at the cathedral was actually something that was outside of the cathedral. So we're just going to leave the cathedral ag uh, again. Oh, I'm just going to talk about something in the cathedral. Always makes me smile. Um, one of the paintings on the wall paintings, the murals, is of uh, Thomas uh, Beckett uh, having the top of his head uh, uh, sliced off in Canterbury uh, Cathedral in, in, in Britain. I often wonder why the French are commemorating that. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's painted on the, on the wall again. I'll post a picture of it, well worth uh, having a look at if you're wandering about inside the cathedral. So, out of the cathedral, 
um, back towards the road and on the right hand side um, you uh, there's a wall and on that wall there's a memorial to the 50th Northumbrian Division and it's a, a division that has a big attachment for me I'm from East Yorkshire and uh, uh, went to school in Beverley which is very much uh, in their recruiting area so uh, right at the top of the memorial uh, there's the, the double T of the Tyne and T's so it's a um, uh, Tyne and Tees, a river. So these capital T's overlapping slightly, one slightly below the other. That's the divisional patch as well. You find it on the vehicles, on the sleeves of the men serving in the uh, uh, in the division. So Tyne and Tees, two rivers, and the recruiting area. The base of it was in between those two uh, those two rivers, uh, and it's a territorial division. Um, so uh, part uh, time soldiers. Um, and then the text on it, to the glory of God and in memory of all ranks of the 50th Northumbrian Division who laid down their lives for justice, freedom and the liberation of France in the assault on the beaches of La Riviere, La Hamel and Aramanche on the 6th of June 1944 and in the battles on the fields of Normandy. The town of Bayeux, the first town in France to be liberated by the Allied armies, was entered and freed by troops of this division on the morning of the 7th of June, 1944. So as I said, this division has always been one that uh, that interests me. And the 69th Brigade um, of the division, uh, they landed at, at Gold Beach, included the 5th East Yorks, the 6th Green Howards and the 8th Green Howards. Uh, and, and interestingly, the sixth green within the sixth green Howards, we uh, we have uh, CSM uh, Company Sergeant Major Stanley Hollis, um, who's awarded the Victoria Cross, and he is the only man to be awarded the Victoria Cross on D-Day, uh, which is interesting in, in its own right. Um, so Stanley Hollis's memorial, uh, I very often visit. Um, but there's there's an interesting connection for my Australian uh, listeners is that the uh, the officer, and I haven't got his name to hand, but the officer that uh, recommended him for the Victoria Cross was actually an Australian. He was an Australian uh, exchange officer who had been attached to the 69th Brigade for experience. Of course, Australian troops looking that they may have to uh, invade Japan in the future. So a few Australians were embedded, using a modern word, uh, with uh, the infantry on D-Day to uh, to have the experience of landing and uh, this officer uh, he was the one that um, that recommended uh, Stanley Hollis for the Victoria Cross so a, a nice little Australian connection um, of course I'm generally speaking more interested in the same division during the the First World War and at that point they were in the uh, the, the 150 uh, 150th Brigade um, uh, and that included the first of the fourth East Yorks, the first of the fourth Yorkshire Regiment, the first of the fifth Yorkshire Regiment, and the first of the fifth Durham Lines Infantry. So it's uh, again, it's the same, the same area. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so um, an interesting, an interesting division. Uh, the divisional patch had changed between the two World Wars. It was uh, the First World War. It was a red uh, unicorn's head. Um, as I say, in Second World War, or just after the First War, it changed to the uh, the double T's. So, um, we then uh, had a good uh, a good evening meal and a, uh, a night's uh, sleep before the following morning. Off we went again. Uh, 
little irritation of mine uh, while we were there. There's a there's a shop there that I visit uh, quite often, and it has hundreds of issues of various uh, uh, French military magazines. But unfortunately, it was uh, it was closed, and there's an awful lot more to see in the town of Bayer as well. Um, and in fact, I, I'm not going to talk about what else there is to see because I think we could actually do a podcast about uh, the town itself. So. Um, off we go, and we we're heading off uh, uh, northwards and east because we're now heading towards uh, Paris, uh, looking at V1 storage sites, um, and also we've identified uh, certain uh, cemeteries we want to go to where there are the graves of Down Dermen who died attacking those V1 sites uh, and the associated infrastructure because it, we're getting beyond, or we will eventually be beyond the firing points and into the storage areas. So, um, we'd stopped at multiple sites before we get to the little village of uh, Marbois. Um, and uh, there, I, I found something that is extraordinary. Now, I don't know the answer to this story. So, I'm going to uh, explain what we discover. And then I'm hoping that somebody out there, one of you, uh, can try and track down some more information about the, about this uh, this chap. So, we're visiting the graves of Airmen uh, who died uh attacking the v1 sites but behind them was another headstone that had the dimensions and size of the standard cwgc marker but on the uh, grave marker but on the front of it was a marble plaque um, and uh, on that marble plaque was the badge of the royal air forces escaping society um, and and it's on a plaque kind of stuck onto the front. Well, it's screwed on, actually screwed onto the front of this standard Commonwealth Wargraves headstone. But then looking at the uh, inscription on the headstone, uh, it says Flight Lieutenant DC Webb, RAF Fighter Pilot, and then it's uh, in French. Uh, so I'm going to read it in French, and then, then I'm sure you'll get the, the gist of, uh, of what it says. So... Um, uh, Abatu uh, June 1944, e ami Francais. Born the 4th of August 1921, died the 13th of November 1992. Effectively, in my absolute appalling French, what that is saying is shot 1944 and recovered by French friends. Now, interestingly, that obviously is a that's a, a Google translation. So it it's uh, shot down in in June 1944, and then looked after by French friends. So, what's it mean? Well, the answer is I have no idea. It just doesn't make any sense to me. This is his grave, so he obviously died here in November 1992. He had friends here. He was obviously shot down here. Um, but that's all, all, all we can. There is nothing else other than that's, that's on on the headstone. I've tried tracking him down. I can't f- track him down at all. Um, the Royal Air Force uh, Forces Escaping Society was a UK-based charity formed in 1946, and it was created to help those people in the former the former occupied territories who had risked their lives to assist downed airmen. Um, and uh, in other words, those attempting to escape and to evade capture. So, so it was formed nothing to do with the the air crew themselves. This is to assist after the war 
um, the, the people who are in difficulties for whatever reason, widows of people that were were, were died uh, after they'd helped people, so either executed or uh, or sent to a to a concentration camp, or just find themselves in difficulty. Um, it's to uh, help those people who assisted down uh, down airmen. So why is that on his headstone? Because he is one of the airmen. So it doesn't. Anyway, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so it was disbanded in 1995, so it doesn't exist any longer. Have they got records of, of members and things? Not really. Um, nothing that I could really uh, uh, tr- uh, track down. I went to the Air Force's Escape and Evasion Society, which is actually American-run, but it, it covers everybody. He's not listed there in 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 that that I can, I can locate. Um, so... So anyway, it's fascinating. It's an interesting, an interesting research project for somebody, and um, to see if they can uh, track down anything else about 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 this chap. So, Flight Lieutenant D. C. Webb. Um, so he was our, a really good uh, sat nav diversion here, one that we uh, that we can't really, I can't get to the uh, get to the the bottom of. Um, so off we go, uh, off we go again. Um, a bit more of a leisurely drive, uh, 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 and not too far. Um, and we're, in, we're now about a hundred kilometers, uh, outside of, uh, of central, um, Paris. And this was a church we were going to, uh, have a look at, a place called Oulins. Oulin. I'm going to spell it O-U-L-I-N-S. Oulins. Uh, that's uh, an English uh, pronunciation. Um, and on the side of the church is a little uh, granite, polished uh, granite, red granite plaque. And it's to Warrant Officer Hilton Craig Bell, Royal Australian Air Force. Um, and this is what it actually says. Hilton Craig Bell, Aviator de la Royal Air Force, uh, decide le 8 of juillet 1944, uh, à l'âge de 21 uh, ans. Uh, and it's Les Habitants Oulan uh, Reconnaissance. So basically it's, um, it's commemorating his loss here on the 8th of July in 1944 and the fact he was 21 years old and it's been uh, put up by the, the villagers. Now interestingly, why is it on the side of the wall? Well, he's missing. Uh, so I looked, looked him up quickly. He's on the, uh, the Air Force's memorial at Runnymede, just known as the Runnymede Memorial. Um, if you want to know where that is, about four miles outside of, uh, of Windsor and, and overlooking, overlooking the River Thames. And it commemorates, uh, the over 20,000 airmen who were lost and have no known, uh, grave, uh, during the war. So. The question is, why is he commemorated here? Why is he on this wall in the rural French uh, church? Um, just behind me, literally across the gravel path, I can see a row of three Commonwealth War Graves uh, headstones. Um, and uh, walking across to them, I discovered that they all died on the uh, on the same uh, the same night. So I'll just read you an account of what happened. On the night of the 7th of July 1944, Lancaster ME668 took off um, f- from Metheringham as part of a squadron attack on the flying bomb dump at saint Lou de Esserent. And that's why we're here. That's why we came here was to see the uh, the crewman. We didn't know about this plaque on the wall. Um, and they, they uh, had uh, um, fierce opposition was encountered 
by the formation uh, and ME668s, that's its number, did not return to base after the raid. Following post-war inquiries and investigations, it was established that the aircraft crashed and exploded at Le Gatin d'Oulin, uh, France, some 33 kilometres north of Drew. Four crew members were killed and three became prisoners of war. So, there we get the story. Uh, four crew members uh, killed and three became prisoners of war. Three of those crew members are buried in this cemetery and one is commemorated on the wall here. So we have to ask ourselves why. So let's just uh, run through the names of the men. Warrant Officer Hilton Craig Bell. This is uh, the Australian who's commemorated on the wall. He was the wireless operator, age 21. Sergeant William Burt Gladstone. Um, he's uh, RAF. Uh, Bell is Royal Australian Air Force. He's the mid-upper gunner, age 19, and he's commemorated here in the uh, in the cemetery, or buried here in the cemetery. Flying Officer William Gordon Hardcastle, um, he's RAF, he's a navigator, age 24. He's um, also buried here in the uh, the cemetery. Flying Officer A.G. Uh, Kinnis was the... Uh, the air bomber, he's prisoner of war, and flight lieutenant Jeffrey uh, Norman Merchant, he's the pilot and he's prisoner of war. Then flying officer Frank Gordon Patterson, Royal Canadian Air Force, he's the rear gunner and he's buried uh, in the cemetery. And then finally Sergeant F. Wells, uh, Royal uh, Air Force, uh, and he's a flight engineer and he's a prisoner of, uh, of war. So, um, Basically, after the war, uh, in, in the investigations, uh, it was uh, recorded that the remains of Warrant Officer Bell could not be located. The other three crewmen who died were located, and they're buried in the cemetery. Um, and and so I just find it fascinating and very moving that the the French, having discovered this and, and knowing this and knowing that his body was not recovered, have decided to make sure that he is commemorated along with the three crewmen who died and are buried in their in their parish cemetery. And I don't think it, it it's it's extraordinary, really. And we find it over and over again in in French villages that they're commemorating the men and women who died within their communes to free them from the occupation during World War Two. Um, and I think it just makes this plaque. Uh, remarkable, really, that the villagers uh, de- desired and needed to commemorate um, uh, this man who should lie, I suppose, with his comrades, but because his body uh, wasn't found and couldn't be found, uh, they felt it necessary to, to put this plaque up. And you know, don't let anybody tell you that the French don't care because because they uh, they certainly they certainly do. Um, I just read you a final report of the uh, uh, that was uh, from one of the the crewmen that survived. Um, so it's the, the actual pilot, flight lieutenant Marchant reported they crossed the French coast at twelve thousand feet in the vicinity of Drew when the aircraft starboard in, uh, in our engine was hit by a flak and caught fire. He ordered the engineer to feather the air screw and operate the extinguisher button, which was done. As the fire did not subside, he ordered the crew to abandon the aircraft. Immediately afterwards, it was hit from each quarter by two enemy fighters. And Flight Lieutenant Merchant states that Warrant Officer Bell and Sergeant Gladstone lost their lives in the air. So in other words, they were killed by uh, in the attack as they're trying to bail out. 
The engineer and bomb aimer bailed out at 12,000 feet. The aircraft was governable but had no lateral control and there was fire in all four engines. The bomb bay and most of the, uh, of the fuselage. The top of the cockpit was blown away and the aircraft went into a shallow spin. Flight Lieutenant Marchant bailed out through the cockpit top at 500 feet and states that the aircraft crashed near the town of, uh, of Drew. So, amazing story, uh, and uh, I'm very, um, very moving. So, back to the car, uh, and off we go again. Um, and again, we're not travelling far uh, to the village of uh, Corgent uh, to visit the graves of the crew from another down bomber. So, th- this one really isn't a sat-nav diversion, because this is the story, uh, this is something that we were going to see, and it's uh, uh, it's it's just part of our, our visit. But it's such an interesting story, and what we discovered was so interesting that I've decided to incorporate it uh, into this um, uh, into this podcast. Even though, strictly speaking, it's not a sat nav diversion; it was a planned a planned visit. So this is the uh, the crew of Lancaster LM three three eight of four six seven Squadron from RAF uh, Waddington in Lincolnshire, and it uh, uh, crashed in this vicinity on the eighth of July nineteen forty four. So we're in the communal cemetery in the village of Corgent, Corgent, I presume. Um, so I'll just tell you a little bit about the plane. Uh, so um, what they were trying to do, again, why we are visiting them is because they are bombing a V1, a V1 storage sites. So intelligence reports indicated uh, that uh, an attack on the 4th and 5th of July on St. Lou succeeded in blocking all approaches to the caves uh, and that a large, and, and this is where they were actually uh, storing the V1s, um, that a large quantity of earth above the caves had fallen into them. It was also known that the Germans were making tremendous efforts to repair this damage. So a similar force uh, of 228 Lancasters, it just shows you how they viewed these uh, the V1s and the firing of the V1s, how important it was to stop them. So 228 Lancasters attacked again on the 7th, uh, the night of the 7th and 8th of July. There was fairly heavy cloud cover over the target at 18,000 feet. So the Australians of number 463 and 467 squadrons came below this height to attack and again reported good results. Enemy ground fire was far more evident, evident than on the first occasion. And although a mandrel screen was in operation to confuse enemy night fighters, the Germans brought up reinforcements from the low countries and 31 Lancasters were shot down. A disappointing high percentage for an attack on northern France, but one which clearly showed the importance in German eyes of protecting saint lô de Esserent. Daylight reconnaissance later showed large new craters over the entrance to the three main tunnels. Roads and rail approaches had been blocked and appeared to be beyond immediate repair. In addition, the riverbanks had been badly cratered, which had caused uh, flooding. Now, this is the interesting uh, fact about this attack. For 10 days after this second attack on St. Lowe, the daily average of flying bomb attacks fell from about 100 to less than 70. Now that doesn't sound like a massive reduction, but it is at a time when we are really under under the pump as far as the the V ones. Um, so Lancaster LM three three eight had taken off from RAF Waddington at 
22-22 hours on the night of 7th of July 1944 to bomb flying bomb storage sites at saint louis de Esserent, France. A bomb load of 11 1,000-pound bombs um, uh, and four 500-pound bombs um, and nothing was heard from the aircraft after takeoff and it did not return to base. 18 aircraft from the squadron took part in the raid and two of these, including LM338, uh, failed to return. Uh, and post-war it was established that the aircraft had crashed at, at uh, Corjon. So the whole crew are, are uh, commemorated here. Um, as we walk, so a little bit about our arrival. So we drew, it's a very roller road and uh, down a, a gentle slope and the cemetery's at the bottom on the right-hand side and we, we turned round and pulled up in front and we walked down towards the graves and the graves are immediately obvious as you enter the cemetery it's very beautiful very attractive wooded area in the valley woods at both sides and uh, as we walked to the graves it became immediately obvious that this was not a, a your normal standard grave because we could see that one of the props of the from the aircraft uh, was um behind the graves so a propeller sticking out of the ground um, and then another memorial behind that as well a cross so we walked round to the front and started reading the inscriptions uh, and um, the first thing that we we noted uh, was this this cross which I, I suspect was the original marker before the Commonwealth war graves set up their headstones and it said uh, here uh, lie seven uh, British aviators um, in their glorious uh, tombs who died in, in aerial combat on the night of the 7th and 8th of July 1944. Notice I didn't uh, this time decide not to read it in the French. Um, and then the blades, the propeller blades are, are behind them. And in front uh, is a photograph of the crew, a framed photograph of the, of the crew as well. So we were just looking at all of this and the mayor uh, came down, came through the gate. We didn't know he was the mayor at the time and uh, and popped across to see what we were doing. I think he was worried that we were going to nick the propeller blades. <laughs> he wasn't really. He came across to have a, a chat with us and to find out. And Andrew, of course, is Australian and the, the crew are Australians, almost all Australians. Um, and so he was interested that an Australian had made the effort to come here and uh, and stayed with us quite a while having a having a chat before he uh, before he headed off. And so that was nice to to meet the mayor while we, while we were there, um, and the, and then we had a look at the uh, the, the uh, private inscriptions on the the bottom of the headstones, which are very are very moving. And I'm I'm going to go through the crew here because I think it's uh, I think it's just nice to 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 remember them and to read their names. So Flight Sergeant uh, Van Edward uh, Cockcroft, he was the bomb aimer. And he was from uh, Toowoomba in uh, in Queensland. And his private epitaph, uh, extraordinary. Dauntless, you leapt to heights untold. Dying, you live forever beloved. A very moving uh, headstone. Sergeant uh, George Arthur Hayes, uh, flight engineer. Now, he's RAF, uh, and he's from Forest Hall in Northumberland. A uh, very simple in, uh, private inscription that I will be done. Warrant Officer Clifford Cecil Jones, he's the navigator, Royal Australian Air Force, from Ballarat, uh, Victoria. A son and brother, beloved and ever remembered. Uh, he was 23. Sergeant William uh, Delden Douglas Kilworth, uh, Royal Australian Air Force Air Gunner, age 20. He's from Scottsdale in Tasmania. His duty nobly done, ever remembered. Flight Sergeant Leonard Haig Porritt. Royal, Royal Australian Air Force, wireless operator, air gunner. 
aged 23. He's from Beechworth in Victoria. Loved and remembered, longed for always. Removing. Flying officer Philip uh, Wyatt Ryan, pilot, Royal Australian Air Force, aged 22. And he's also from Beechworth in Victoria, so they obviously knew each other, uh, uh, Porritt and Ryan. And he was aged 22. No epitaph on his, no private epitaph on his uh, headstone. And then Flight Sergeant James Pat uh, Stephan, Royal Australian Air Force, air gunner, aged 20, and he's from Mount Lawley, Western Australia. His duty nobly done. Um, so the whole crew line the, uh, in the, in the cemetery. So we spent quite a lot of time, uh, here just, uh, talking about them and, uh, looking them up while we were, while we were there and reading their, their, uh, epitaphs. Um, so we got back in the car. And it just shows you how you don't notice things. We drove back up the road that we'd just driven down and literally a hundred yards up the road, we noticed another memorial. Uh, and it's a, a stone memorial built almost like a tomb. For those of you that know the stone remember, remembrance in the Commonwealth Wargrave cemeteries, you'll know that's what it looked like. It's, it's like that, but in, in a darker stone. Central plaque, uh, the, the glorious uh, aviators of the Allies, uh, died for our liberty, eighth uh, of July, nineteen forty-four. Again, written in uh, in in French, and then their names again cast on two panels side by side. And what we realised is that the plane had literally crashed a hundred kind of yards or so up the road from where the cemetery is. So their bodies were recovered from very, very close to the cemetery. Uh, and in fact, it also explains why the prop is there, because the prop was just literally 100 yards up the road from one of the engines, and it was brought down to be placed on their, on their graves when they were, when they were, they were buried there. So the whole thing just, just very moving. And as I said, worthwhile adding to the, uh, the sat-nav diversions, even though it, strictly speaking, is not uh, a, uh, a diversion. It was, it was planned. So that really ended the uh, the second day. We uh, we carried on, and in fact, uh, we stayed in a, a, a accommodation on the outskirts of Paris before carrying on. And so there is the potential. I'm going to call a halt there, but there is a potential for a a, a third uh, sat nav diversions, um, and perhaps we'll do that in the in the uh, in the near uh, future. So I hope you've uh, you've enjoyed it. Um, I must close with a, a big thank you to uh, to Andrew. Uh, who keeps planning uh, my, these little outings uh, and uh, very enjoyable that, that they are. Right, time for another cup of tea. Talk again soon. Uh, ta as they say in Yorkshire. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.